Hi, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I am here with Susan, as always. Hello there. And special guest, Abby Covert. Hello, Abby. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Abby is an independent information architect. Um, she runs her own business, Abby VIA. Uh, the author of a book, which hopefully we'll talk about, uh, which is How to Make Sense of Any Mess, and the, a teacher at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Now, um, before we get going, I just want to do our standard little introduction. If you're new to the podcast, feel free to listen to the old episodes. They're really great. If you're not new, feel free to tell all your friends. You can tweet Susan at, what's your handle? At the Brain Lady. Abby, is there any place you'd like people to send compliments to you? Oh, compliments are always encouraged. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at AbbyTheIA or send me an email. And if you have any complaints about Abby, feel free to email them to info at the <laughs> So we'll, we'll, take, we'll take the gruff for you there. Um, and yeah, and it, our, our website is, again, theteamw.com. So um, yeah, Abby, Abby's pretty cool. Uh, we met Abby when we were doing our Stockholm trip. She was also a speaker. Um, at the at the conference of fame and fortune because out of all the speakers el gore liked her best so that's true <laughs> he mentioned he mentioned the phrase information architecture how many times abby because you were counting it was 11 times 11 times, yeah. 11 times. so so abby is an information architect um i guess i don't i don't know uh like uh, an evangelist is that would that be the correct term uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I sort of think about it as being more like a missionary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, we're, we'll, we'll talk about what it is. I know um, I was vaguely aware of it before um, hearing Abby's talk in Stockholm. Um, Susan is a little more aware of it just because of, you know, she has more history in the field. Um, and I'm sure a lot of you listening have never heard of it before. But it's just, it's a, it's a cool idea. And so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll run the, the kind of start about what it is. Um, any, anything else that I've missed? Oh, uh, no, I think that's good. Okay. I think, I think we're ready. To okay, okay. Dive into the uh, mess and IA of Abby's brain. <laughs> so okay, so Abby, how about how about you just give us the give the the normal listener, um, you know, uh, Joe the truck mechanic, who who listens every day while he's okay, maybe maybe a little higher than uh, than that, somewhere in between uh, a, a usability professional and Joe the truck mechanic of what is information architecture. Well, luckily, I think IA actually applies to um, to all of those job titles that might be in between the usability professional and Joe the truck driver. So um, I would say that information architecture is the way that we arrange the parts of something to make sense as a whole. So for Joe, he's probably at some point in his uh, time mechanicing trucks looked at instruction manuals for how uh, an engine comes together, uh, has a vocabulary of what all the pieces and parts of the truck are called, and has an understanding of how those parts work together in order to serve the need of you know driving a truck. Um, from a usability professional, uh, they generally will work within an organization, and that organization will have terms for things and also structures that organize those things so they're understandable both internally by people that work there as well as externally, uh, assuming that they are working with some form of end user. So information architecture encapsulates what we call things and how we arrange them so that they make sense for whatever our intention is. And so when you look at it from that, the, the title makes a lot more sense. Which title? Information, architecture, oh. literally creating <laughs> architectures of information. Of information. Yeah. It yeah. sounds and vague it, at first, but then you're like, oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting because I think it sounds vague, more vague to people who work closer to the space than it does to people outside. Like, I, I do um, get a lot of joy out of asking people outside of our industry about what they think it means. So rather than, like, I always get the, uh, so what do you do? And I'm, I'm an information architect. And people usually say something like, wow, that sounds cool. What is that? <laughs> and before I answer them with my words, I like to ask them, like, well, what, what do you think it is? And generally, they're able to get pretty darn close. I mean, not down to the, the nuts and bolts of, uh, of how I practice it, but generally people were like, you know, oh, is that like, is that like how you 
arrange information like for things like computer systems and i'm like yeah that's that's pretty close <laughs> so um yeah i think it's pretty understandable just as a concept you know that's funny it. it's funny that you would say that um you know, people who are in, let's say, in the field of design uh, or people who do user experience work or usability work would have a harder time describing it than people who are new to it. But I get that. I get that. And I think maybe part of that is because, um, you know, there's so much, I think, confusion about uh, terminology in, yeah. you know, quote, our, if, if we're talking about, let's just say user experience, you know, our field and, and at, which is so ironic because, um, in your book, which I, I just love your book, by the way, I'm, I'm holding it and you probably you guys probably just heard that loud noise I made, which was me, um, actually, uh, rifling through pages without, you know, accidentally. Um, and it's called how to make sense of any mess and it's this it's a very it's a small book it's really um accessible and readable which you know you would think if you're writing a book about information architecture that would be what someone would do right they'd be able an an information architect would be able to write a really really great um well organized book but there's actually a lot there well there are some information architecture books out there that are pretty hard to read and pretty ponderous um but yours is great but it, it's it's also interesting though because you talk in the book about the idea of um you know one of the things you have to do with information architecture is define your terms and yeah. make sure everyone in the group or the organization or you know or whoever it is you're working with you know, understands and agrees on the terms. And yet, ironically, in the field of user experience, I think we have a big mess. Yeah, yeah. Terms. And there's, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But yeah, frankly, the information architecture of user experience design is pretty screwed up. <laughs> yeah, that's really um, kind of strange. But I, I think, you know, if you think about the reasons, it, it actually, it resembles organizations that I work with um, pretty, pretty directly. Like, uh, one thing that happens is the proprietary nature of the work that we do. So like, you know, if you work for a company like IDEO, for example, you've got all of your branded names for all of the documentation that you create during your process. And if you go on, you know, if you go on a brief interview circuit of a bunch of, you know, design agencies, you're going to yeah. very quickly have, you know, a whole ton of different versions of the same four-step process with different labels slapped on it. And within that, you're going to have people who have these, you know, new and fancy job titles. But if you really get down to the, the nuts and bolts of what they do, it's very similar to other job titles. So I think that the the proprietary nature of the work that we do is, is one part of it. Um, and then also, I think that there is, there is this unfortunate want to obfuscate the simplicity of what we do. Uh, because we're selling it to clients. And I think that that happens a lot. Like the the want to be smarter than your clients because they're paying you to be and using big fancy words to to get at that, I think is, uh, is a strategy that a lot of people use. Like interphase five. Yeah. Oh, come on, stop. That was our process where you hit. I, I don't even know what ago. that is. <laughs> um, that's, uh... No, but that was brilliant. That, I'm not saying it wasn't brilliant. Of course, everybody, just... everybody's own version of it is brilliant. Everybody had, I know. Well, you know. Um, that, that was uh, a lot of years ago. A lot of years ago. I remember, though, I remember Shit, sitting I with um, uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, however, and, and I mean, we spent hours. I mean, we spent days. We spent weeks sitting in my office having very heated discussions about, you know, what the process, you know, what the best process is and what things should be called in the process. I mean, that we really, we really were, I mean, we were arguing at many points. But um, I think the other thing that, that goes into that, the other reason that we don't agree on terms and definitions of, of what we do and how we do it is because people are coming from different backgrounds, right? Because you've got, yeah. like, you mentioned IDEO, so you've got, like, the design 
people and the design thinking people and that that kind of design agency world. But then you've got the people who are coming at it from um, I, a uh, like I am from a behavioral science psychology point of view, and then you've got the people who came up through the ranks doing usability work, and then you've got the visual designers, right, right. who are and doing UX work, and then you've got people who come at it from programming um, and software development. So you've you know you have all these different. Um, backgrounds of people with their own terminology and their own process and you know they're all actually doing very similar things you know and but they they call it different things I mean I'm thinking about in your book um, there's a place where you and it's actually one of my favorite things you do in the book is you uh, you walk through you know all the different, well, you could do a mind map, you could do a hierarchy diagram, you could do a Venn diagram, you could do a swim lane diagram, right? right. All the different kinds of diagrams, for instance. And, uh, you know, it, it, we, we all use these, right? Or we don't all use all of them, but we tend to have these ways of organizing and um, communicating information um, but you know, we, we have our own little process and our own little thing we call it. Right. And I don't, I don't think that any of that is necessarily bad. Like I, I would, I think that it would be a fool's errand to try to perfect the world and get everybody to standardize on yes, what we call everything. Really? Like it, it, really? But it, yeah, absolutely. That's that because things you are always tired... changing and, and everything else. But I yeah. feel like the, the more important thing is to understand when it's getting in your way and then to have the tools to look at it from a perspective of how so can you have we standardize a, this. You have a higher tolerance for mess. Oh, yeah. The world is than messy. I think than I do. The world is like the world is messy, messy. And that's not to you. That's not a bad thing. No, that's part of being human. I think humans are messy. You know, we're, we're not we're not machines. We're not able to be reprogrammed. Um, and, you know, I mean, one of the most complicated parts of what I do is that even though usually I'm working on, um, you know, the things that we're creating, ultimately the changes that I'm trying to make are, are the things that are coming out of people's mouths, which are determined by what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And that's the hard stuff to change. You know, I can get a company to change a label for a certain piece of functionality, but if I can't get them to stop thinking about it in the old way that they were thinking, the chances are that that label will come back at some point because it's attached to that model in their head. So kind of getting people to understand that it's not just the things that we're creating that we have to change to really have like lasting effect. It's actually deeper than that. So how do you know though? Okay. So, so you got, you have some kind of mess, right? Yeah. And, and that mess might be any we mess. Have all, any mess. I mean, we have all these people <laughs> and they're all thinking about the, this the process or the thing or right they're all thinking about it in a different way or they're all talking about it in a different way or you know whatever the mess is how do you know um how much order to try and put on that or is that even a goal for you are you trying to put any order on it is it are you trying to put like just enough order on it are you or is that not even the right question? I think it's about, it's less about the level of order and more about the level of understanding that needs to be put on it. Because sometimes I'll work with clients and they want, they think they want to put order on something, but really what they need to be, uh, what would be more helpful for them would be to be educated on what they don't understand about the situation. Because there are some things that can be ordered and then there's some things that really just, it wouldn't serve them uh, can, to order can you them. Give, can you give an example? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, when when we talk about something like um, search, right, search is a really good example of, of something that people struggle with uh, kind of putting, putting their arms around. It doesn't matter what it is your system is doing. Uh, generally, if it's a digital system, it's going to have some level of attention to search. And I think people believe that if they could just buy the right technology, if they could just, um, you know, make the right results interface, if they could just tweak the input 
uh, field so that it does all the fancy stuff that Google does, that they'll have what they need in terms of results. And that's actually usually not the case. Like there's something much more important going on behind the, the scenes when it comes to search that often needs to be dealt with before you can actually get the, the user part of it taken care of. And a lot of that comes down to understanding the impact of things like structured data, right? Like organizations want to solve the problem that they have, but they don't always have the ability to describe the problem in its pieces so that they can actually be tackled. So, you know, I've, I've walked into organizations that have gone years talking about, oh, well, wouldn't it be great if we could just fix this thing? Or wouldn't it be great if we could just fix that thing? But actually describing and breaking it down into the pieces is, is the harder part. That's the part that they have to admit that some things are out of their control. Some things will take an amount of time that can't be put on a Gantt chart. Some things will be immeasurable by their ROI standards that they generally use around, you know, whatever that might be, conversion, time on site, uh, you know, whatever that organization is, is used to measuring things by. So, you know, breaking down what the actual intention of the change is, and then breaking it into its pieces so that people can really see it. You know, I, I say in the book that I think the first step to making sense of any mess is to actually admit that there is a mess and then draw a picture of it to be able to see that it is indeed a mess. So you know which parts of it you could actually affect change on. And then, and then to realize that it might not be a problem that it's a mess. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, that, I mean, you know, folksonomies are another good example. Like, you're you're not uh, going what to... Is, what is uh, that? So a folksonomy is <laughs> a, a taxonomy or uh, a structured relationship set between pieces of content that have emerged through uh, user-generated content. So a good example of that would be, like, hashtags on Twitter, right? Like, hashtags on Twitter were invented for a reason, being that they wanted a way to group conversations. But users have gone and done all sorts of other things with it, right? It's become kind of like a, a tongue-in-cheek use of internet slang to make a hashtag for something that's not about grouping a conversation. Um, and that's sort of a mess if you look at it empirically. But is a beloved feature of the internet. So it's not necessarily a mess that we want to change necessarily. Yeah, see, so this is interesting because I think that I have tended to think of information architecture as, you know, the way to create order. And and now I'm realizing that that's, you know, not really what it is. and. Necessarily, you know, and and that, um, you know, if you think about the way the brain works, right? I mean, if you think like about neural nets and about teaching machines to learn, um, it's it's done in this kind of messy, yeah, way, you know mm-hmm. that that that's that's the way our brain our brains actually are very messy and work best messy. Uh, but and- but things don't don't things don't exist in our brain without attachment to other things. So it, it's not about the uh, the hierarchy. It's about the relationship. And sometimes those relationships are like squiggly lines that don't seem to make any sense. It's, but it's they why, still they're the way we make sense. It's the why my piles of junk are organized to you, and <laughs> yeah. someone else's piles of junk are piles of junk. And this is what I tried to tell when I was a little kid, telling this is why I didn't need to clean my room. But no, no, it needed to be objectively organized. Even though I tried to explain to them the information architecture and the neural networks of my brain were messy. Oh, wait, oh, wait, wait. Seriously? Trying to. No, that's a joke. It's a joke. Hey, um, I have a question, Abby. Sure. This is my my brilliant question time. So, is will it uh, so, so you know about deep learning right mm-hmm. and uh, software generated neural networks yeah uh, google recently implemented these in their data servers for optimizing their cooling systems 
So I don't know if you've heard about this, but you, you know, they have huge data centers which use a lot of power. And there's lots of different ways to cool them, right? They, they got they got liquid cooling, they got air vents, they use air conditioning, and you know, there's a little, you know, the little fans turn on here and the little things. So they so Google applied their neural network to try and make it more efficient. And first time right out the bat, um, it found like 38%, uh, it was 38% more efficient just by letting the neural networks analyze all the data and, uh, and figure out um, the, the most op optimal solutions. So they're going to start applying this to all kinds of industries. Is there a future in which you can, um, you, the human, uh, group together all of the various information in a structure that you're working with and then um, give it to a piece of software that will automatically organize it into uh, a very useful information architecture or give you a couple of options? I think that there's already tools that are starting to, to play with that idea. I mean, like if you look at a, a tool like Facebook, for example, um, that's starting to organize things for you. If you look at something like um, their slideshow feature, which takes all of the photos that you've taken today and assumes that if you've taken a bunch of photos in a, uh, a quick succession, that they're probably related to each other. And it serves you up as like a, do you want to produce this as a thing to put on your wall as a moment? Uh, if you look at the way that they've, um, they've, used uh, smart inputs in terms of like when you copy a link into the status update box, it knows that you're going to share a resource and it automatically formats it to have a little thumbnail and the pulls the description from the metadata of the page that you're sharing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's definitely, uh, I would say that that feature is, is not far off at all. Um, that's actually something that a lot of tools and features are starting to explore already. Um, whether or not there's ever going to be like, you know, this epic machine that I'm putting all of my stuff in. Um, I don't know. I mean, who has the business model to, to do something like that? I would say Google is probably the closest. Um, uh, and they've, they've started to do things like that, too. I mean, if you look at some of the, the recent innovations they've done in their inbox tool where, you know, if you're going on a trip, it automatically groups together your flight and your rental car and your hotel. And even the, um, you know, when I go to speak for conferences and things, it actually knows that, oh, that that is an email from the organizer that is organizing the Stockholm conference. Let's put that with the plane ticket receipt and, you know, and then it groups it together for you. So there's definitely a lot of examples of, of people experimenting with that kind of thing. So let me give you another example. So uh, like Susan said earlier, uh, recently what we did is we're trying to move more to a, a cloud-based system. She, so, so for a lot of years, she had a, a MacBook Pro that she did a lot of her business on. Um, and you know, she now uses a Windows desktop, but none of that's really relevant. The relevant part is that her files are kind of, were kind of all over the place because she had files from, um, you know, years ago, old projects that she was on. She had new files that she was creating. There were personal files. So what we did over the last, I don't know, call it two weeks, even though it's probably been about, I'll call it 11 years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, right? Like you just kind of put stuff in a place. And then, um, so she's been going through all of the files. And then uh, we have, we have, you know, Microsoft uh, Office 365. So um, it comes with a terabyte of cloud storage. So she's just been slowly um, going through each folder and then reorganizing that in a system that makes sense on the cloud. And mm -hmm. it'll, it'll upload everything. So now she has a, 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 a structure that makes sense um, to do her and what she's trying to do. Uh, and all of her files that were just kind of shoved into places are now at least in a place where you'd expect them to be. So it's been a big project. So what I could see, right, is, is Microsoft has a simple service uh, that's, that's part of Windows. Um, that will that you you know you look you just press the button and it will analyze all the files in the folder that you specify and it will then come up with several with you know how would you like these files organized right mm. by topic uh, by kind of date by project um, and it'll analyze all the files and put things in a logical order that makes sense and if it runs into problems just like um, <clears throat> if you do like uh, like uh, I don't know if you ever use the um, word recognition in like uh, Adobe. Mm -hmm. So it'll automatically turn a picture into words you can copy and paste, right? And if it has any problems, it'll be like, 
what is this? And then you can use like, okay, this is, you know, the word, you know, both. And then you're like, all right, moving on. Um, so you could do that with the files too, right? And so, so that is a simple way in which you can have kind of machine learning and it, it sends everything to, to Microsoft servers, which have seen 10 million trillion ways users organize their files and knows all the tips and tricks and then analyzes everything and can organize things for people without them having to do any work, even though it's still kind of messy. It's a way to place things in human relations. Yeah, I would say that the closest product that I've seen to that at this point, because um, I do, I, I want what you just described. I don't believe it exists, but man, that would be a great opportunity for a company like Microsoft. If you're yeah. listening, Microsoft. Call um, me. Yeah, call, call Guthrie. Or Abby. Um, but I think that one of the products I have seen that has done that uh, pretty closely with photos specifically is Google Photos. I don't yeah. know if you guys have, have seen that, but I mean, it's yep. amazing what it can uh, tell about a photo. I mean, you can all of a sudden you can type in the word sunset and it'll find everything that it thinks looks like a sunset or puppy. Um, and it knows you know that. But then it also allows you to organize it by the location that you were or the people in the photo or uh, the time frame of the photo it, It's uh, or the source of the photo did it come from your digital camera or did it actually come from your phone um all those things so there's there's definitely a lot of folks that are starting to kind of blend the ideas of information architecture and machine learning in some really interesting ways abby have you um watched the uh the ted talk about the uh, google neural networks i don't think so that sounds like a good one though susan um Oh, do you remember the name of the person who gave that? It was it was a number of years ago, and it was the person at Google who was responsible for, for figuring out the neural networks of Google Photos. Um, and her and her team basically... You're were, talking about the the woman. Yeah, I, a, I talk about her in my talks yeah, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. with the cat, right? Exactly, exactly. So so because because they, they were trying to do different ways of, all, of, of figuring out how to do this, because Google knew what they wanted, which is exactly what you said, which is what exists today. But... That's a very challenging software problem because if you look at a picture of a cat, well, it's on a white background and it's rolled over on its belly. And if you look at another picture of a cat, it's in the grass and it's playing, you know, with a ball, right? Like right. a cat looks like totally different from all these other things. And so to have a computer figure out that this white cat is a cat and this kind of cat in the grass is a cat is a really challenging problem. Um, right. So she talks about how uh, the way they organize things and the way they kind of made this 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 neural network work, and obviously, you know, it, it's it's kind of it's working with all kinds of stuff, and you know, driverless cars and um, so all all sorts of things. But yeah, she uh, she talks about how they kind of did that, and it it literally was for the Google Photos project. So, um, Susan, do you, do you want do you have that, or I can look that up too? No, I'm getting it. I because my files are now extremely organized. <laughs> oh, look at that! <laughs> uh, I the was able speed to, to find has increased. I was able to find it while you were talking. Yeah, wow. yeah, See? great efficiency gains. What Yay. do you think? Is I also that cool or what? Okay. I also um, yeah. to the audience. I I bought a solid state drive and then ripped her hard drive her hard drive out of her MacBook Pro, put it on a new drive install an operating system from the cloud. And then, uh, so now her computer is really fast with solid. Yes, but actually I, d I found this on my desktop, not on my MacBook. Phone. I know it's cause it's on the cloud now. I know. Okay. Saying. So the, this, this was a, this is a Ted talk, um, called how we teach computers to understand pictures and the woman's name is, and I, I apologize for mispronouncing this. I probably am, uh, Fei Fei Li. So it's F E I. And then F-E-I is in the next word. And then L-I is the last part hmm, of the to, name. I'll have to watch that. That sounds really interesting. And it has cats. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so what, how what more could you want? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Neural networks and, and cats. Neural networks I mean. and cats. I, I think yeah. that's a winning TED Talk totally. format well, right know, there. It, um, while you guys were talking, I was also thinking about the fact that if you had um, and I can just imagine, you know, like listening back to this podcast episode, you know, five years from now, oh, it's going so, to be so dated and just thinking, oh. you know, boy, we were just so amazed that that might happen. You know, isn't that funny? Um, but 
it's not just the information though and and the the structure of the information and the pieces in it i i was going back to your example of you know something just analyzing all my files and then saying well why didn't you organize it this way um i have two comments one is because it has a lot to do with how the information is used right i mean that history that history i i i would want this algorithm to not only look at the data and the types of information, but how I've been using it over the last three or four or five years, right? And right. and to to then get insights from that, it's like oh oh she she uh, you know she puts together you know these things, right? Um, uh, it's not just that it's a a, a PowerPoint file. Right. It's that it seems to be about uh, decisions, you know, research on the brain or something like that. Um, so that would so it, I think it needs that level of sophistication, too. Uh, and, and not not just the type of, of information it is. But um, what was the other thing I was going to ask, though? around this when I was listening to you guys talk. So you've got this idea of, uh, you know, this, the machine could analyze the data and know how to organize it. Or, or is it, should it be more like what you were describing, Abby, where, um, you know, if you think about the photo idea, right? You have all these attributes, so you can you can group it by sunsets, you can group it by family members, you can group it, right? You can group it by location where you were when the picture was taken, right? I mean, maybe the, it never needs to be organized. Like maybe, in terms of a, a folder structure, like the, the yeah, whether maybe, or not whether or not hierarchy is a necessary function. Yeah, I mean, if the if there's enough smarts in the in the algorithms the data is just there and and you don't care right it's similar to like like a a product like amazon like it's uh it's pretty well understood that amazon is uh primarily search driven and that the categories are really more like facets and less like navigational hierarchies you know people don't people don't go to amazon and go like i'm gonna go to the books page and look at all the books like it's it doesn't it doesn't right. work like that. Right. They, and, they and, if you, something else. and interestingly, if you try to navigate, like, even just taking books at Amazon, I mean, any <laughs> anything at Amazon, but, um, you know, using the book example, you know, if you try to go through and and look at the, ca- okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to look at nonfiction books and then I'm going to go pick this time. I mean, you, you can't find what you need. Right. I mean, there's just, there's too many results well and also the what i've called you know the way i'm thinking of a category is not the way they're thinking of a category so i never you know uh and it, like my books on amazon are in totally bizarre categories oh my gosh mine too i'm i'm a really well-selling book in data storage and retrieval yeah i i thought <laughs> nothing, like, says, really? nothing okay. says hard disk drives but like I, when I classified it, I classified it as um, under philosophy in a subsection called uh, logic and language. So I mean, I don't think either one of those are very findable in terms of browsing. I feel like pattern. on a college campus, the people in the data systems and the philosophy department are very different people. But they're both reading my book, Guthrie. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It. I mean, the yeah, yeah. I mean, it's got my books. I think at at one point. I'm 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 looking it up here. Um, one of my books is like uh, ranks really high in. Uh, let's see. Well, it's in like medical psychology or something. It's like what? There you go. <laughs> you know. Well, for instance, uh, my best-selling book um, often does best in uh, desktop publishing, which is not. That's not even a term that is the, used anymore, really. Well, I mean, he uses that term, and I've never heard of doesn't it. Doesn't have anything to do with desktop publishing. So oh, that's so cute. My first job was in desktop publishing. Are you are you talking about me not not knowing about desktop publishing? 
I I think a lot of people don't know about that. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a um that's a retro term at this point. What is it? It it's it's basically um <laughs> layout know? it's layout for print design. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It's, but it's it was like a really popular term very in the, popular the, term 90s, in the 90s. The late 90s. Right. And we so cuz but now that everyone's just using InDesign it's it's thick. I mean InDesign is desktop publishing. Yeah, InDesign uh was something that um came out of a product called Quark. Hey, I know Quark. And, well, Quark is a desktop publishing. Uh, as was uh, even further back than that, you would have had something like PageMaker. Um, so Quark and PageMaker sort of burst God, what I is now in all these things. Yeah, me too. I <laughs> I used to teach people how to use those things and now you did? totally useless skills <laughs> that I still or like Corel Draw, which used to oh, that was what Corel Draw before that Illustrator. Yeah, oh, so so many things. Susan, what's I the most to... archaic uh, software uh, situation that didn't you that you used to teach or know of? Ah, uh, wow. Well, I don't want to really answer that honestly because <laughs> people will know how old I am. But w Windows Vista, right? That's as far back as you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know what that is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just looking up, yeah, what my most recent book is listed in uh, medical books, psychology. There you I, go. It's like, I, I don't understand. Talk about brain science. Medical books? So, um, yeah, you're right. People don't use a Amazon, you know, they don't use that. So that's but Amazon uses them, and that's the, that's the crux. Of, of the whole thing, right? Like, not everything is intended for all audiences. And Amazon did not, in, I mean, from what I can see of what they constructed, they did not construct that categorization system to work for the users of Amazon. But it does help them in terms of making related books go together in other features. And that's where it becomes more important. I wonder if it's different, because if you think about how Amazon organizes stuff, right they do warehouse so like your book has to be in a section right now in, a, in the digital world it's kind of like quantum uh you know quantum theories where where your book can be in both places at the same time right it is both psychology or it, it is both philosophy and in like information hardware right it's a poly hierarchy but but with like a book in a warehouse it's a physical thing and you don't want to have multiple like repositories of that because it's inefficient. So right. it has to, you know, if you think of the classic like Barnes and Noble, like you write it like what sections, right? It has to be in a section. And so you only get one. And so for things in the physical world, they, they, they kind of have to, you, you gotta be, you gotta be somewhere. And I bet it has, I mean, I would, I would bet it has nothing to do at all with category at that You mean point. how they have it in the warehouse? Yeah. Well, we would I'm, like to hear from someone who works at yeah, at I think Amazon that would be super cool about about in the warehouse. Where is Abby's book? Right. Well, my is book it, is not in the warehouse, so there's the answer. Oh, it's my, not. No, because my book is print on demand, so all it right, comes well, out then, of a printer when. All right, it's then ordered. why don't we we can ask where's my book in the warehouse? Then? Yeah, because we're not print on demand. Abby, do you know about Amazon's warehouses? No, they're really, really, really cool. I mean, they're they're um, robot manned, right? Like, don't they have yeah, so robots that pick things up and bring the, the ones, packers the things? Yeah. So, have you ever been into? I you know, and I don't know if people have been this into like a huge like maybe like a college library where they have um, the bookshelves that slide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, for those who who I'm not know what I'm talking about, think of a a normal like grocery store aisle. Right. And between each aisle, you have to have a room for people to walk. Well, if all the aisles are on wheels, you only need one row, because then if you want to get to someone, you just literally move. You just want, you know, it's like Moses, like you know, parting, <laughs> parting the, the shelves, the book sees. Yeah. And so they do that. So they, they do the same thing, um, except they just use these kind of like it's not really a shelf. It's more like a stand uh, that's that's, you know, maybe like four feet by four feet by like 10 feet tall and it has a bunch of stuff in it and that stand is on a little robot and so when an order needs to go out let's say you're carrying um susan's book 
that that's on your stand and it's like okay that's called and so the little robot gets a little chirp signal and all the little kind of does like a like a little remember the game where there's one square that's empty and you got to move things around yeah. to make the picture so it kind of does that and then it works it gets gets out and goes to the person it's still a person who's putting the things in the box right and so the person looks and they got he's got three little robots there and they have the boxes right in front of them of all of the three things they're supposed to grab. They put it in the box, throw it down the conveyor belt, and then they fill the next order. It's amazing. It's yeah, amazing. it is. Yeah, it really is. But that's that's what uh, that's that's kind of how Amazon does it. So I'm sure it's all done by barcode, and I'm, I'm sure there's there's lots of really advanced analytics and stuff they do. Yeah, you guys gotta you gotta track down the right person to get them on the show <sighs> to talk about this. Susan, you got Amazon connections. I do have Amazon connections. So um, yeah, let's make a note of that, and uh, we will find someone. They probably at, can't at divulge Amazon. their super secret trade secrets, but maybe they, they probably won't in, tell us. Yeah, they'll publicly. talk in generalities. They made that, the video public, so they got to. Yeah, that still doesn't mean they're going to tell us how they find a book in the warehouse. So okay, um, Abby, what? So obviously, besides, I don't know the 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 fame and glory and money of information architecture, <laughs> the, se- the sexy, sexy world that it is. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> hey, it made, we saw, we saw her having a conversation with Al Gore about it. That's true. That's true. Okay. I mean, I got, I got that far, which is okay. pretty awesome. So besides obviously the glitz and glamour, what, what is it? Why, why do you, cause you, like information architecture so much because I, for example, when I was in college, I decided to do economics and I like economics and because like efficient things are better things. Like literally, it literally makes the world a better place if you have a system that's more efficient. But why do you like information architecture so much? I think that um, I'm really obsessed with the idea of clarity. Um, I just think that a lack of clarity gets in the way of people's intentions so much that I feel as if I've been I've been given um, the ability to see through a lot of the like anxiety of looking at something that is inherently messy and being able to see like glimmers of what could be clarified and I just find that really exciting like I like I like helping people to reach their goals and I I feel like often there's a lot of kind of mess in between what they have and what they want to accomplish. And I think cleaning that up and kind of helping people to organize themselves so that they can get things done um, just makes a lot of sense to me. It's something that I've, I've always been good at uh, and I've always kind of um, seen it as, as a gift that I can give to other people. So when you get a new project, are you more excited about a project that needs a little bit of work or something that's com- a complete disaster? What no, I want. You? I want a complete disaster. Oh, okay. Yeah. No. I, I. I generally do not. Well, first, I generally don't get offered positions that aren't a complete disaster because information architecture is practiced by people of all sort of walks of life and um, and occupations. And because of that, if it's just a small deal, it's usually something that somebody else can take care of and mm. and doesn't have enough anxiety about that they're looking for an expert. So just off off the the cuff, it's the the kinds of things that tend to find their way to me are the bigger messes. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's funny, like at the beginning of um, most of the projects that I'm on, my clients are almost like convinced that I'm going to walk away once I actually get into it because like, oh yeah, well, what about this? And how about this? And we've got five of these and it's in 12 <laughs> languages and, you know, just, we have thousands of this and I, I just like bring it on. This is exactly what I like to do. That's pretty. That's pretty awesome. Do you find though that um, I would think there would be that the people that the organizations that need you most don't call you because because I don't think people often organizations often realize that they that they have as big a problem as they have and that they're, you know, I think I, I, I was thinking when you were talking before about the, this whole idea of people measuring the wrong things, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I, I find in my work, 
you know, people get very caught up in measuring. The metrics are very important. And so they base everything they're doing around the measuring, but they're not measuring things that are of real import and value and usefulness. Because they don't want to. Or they can't. Or they don't. Like, like how do you, how do you measure trust? How do you measure um, lifetime health of a relationship? I mean, there's so many things that are just inherently difficult to measure. Um, How do you measure understanding, really? I mean, other than through behavior. And ultimately, if you start measuring it through behavior, does it not become a watered down action as opposed to the thing that you were looking to measure to begin with? So I think that um, I think you're right, Susan, like the organizations that probably need me most don't know that they need information architecture assistance. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, I, they're, I do so, find that it comes from the middle up for the most yeah. part. Like there's always somebody yeah. that either they're coming from an engineering perspective or a marketing perspective or a product manager or a designer that is like, yo, this is I. I can't do my job because this thing is in the way and this thing that's in the way, this mess that we have is something that I think is attributed to an issue of information architecture. And they have had the privilege of kind of been being educated on that subject and know those words. And that's the path that the people find me via. And, you know, that's, that's fine because right now there's only one of me. Um, but I think that people that are selling information architecture services in general do run into that, that problem space of like, how do you, how do you educate the world on a problem that they they all have, but they don't know that they have? I mean, I know yeah. a lot of people, like friends of mine, who work for a lot of companies whose corporate culture breeds these kind of problems. Oh yeah, acronym and, town. <laughs> yeah, and they and they and of course the the company doesn't want to admit that they have like huge structural problems Mm -hmm. but like if you actually ask the people on the ground who have to deal with this every single day like and there's just so it's just like constant problems because you're trying to put a square peg into a round hole into like a garbage can and then like the garbage can has to like fly to outer space it just you know it just is there's just nothing it's working. So Abby, what do you do when someone brings you in and they they're bringing you in for, you know, because they they would like help with this little information architecture issue. And when you get there, you know, you realize that's I mean, you can you can work with them on that, but that's not really what they need, right? They actually have a much larger problem. What um, do you, do you tell them? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I try to take care of most of that in the upfront um, kind of like crafting of an engagement. Um, I try not to walk into situations that I feel are overly tactical for that reason. Like if somebody calls me and says something like, um, uh, we have this one feature of our website that we need to work on the IAF. Like mm-hmm. I'm very unlikely to continue with that sales call without kind of trying to bring them up a level or five um, in terms of how that thing fits into the rest of the ecosystem. Because often what I do find is that, you know, that's just a symptom of a much larger disease. Um, And then I'll try to frame the assignment from the highest level that I think I can actually achieve Um, and not be afraid to, you know, walk away if it's not something that they're willing to deal with at a level that I think will actually solve the problem. Like if they're like, yeah, 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 no, we know it's actually a disease and it's, you know, we're about to lose our left arm from but, it, but, but we, we just, just want, want you to, to put the band in. Yeah. On, we just want yeah. you to like paint our nails. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not interested in that kind of work. And, and those things do happen um, occasionally, but um, I think that that's the job of a consultant to sort of um, only, only go after the work that you think you can really see a lasting effect that that you want to be proud of what you did you know all right so what what's the what's the newest thing that you're working on uh recently i've been working on a uh a topic called collaborative information architecture and really i think that it came out of well two things one in um in my early career i spent a lot of time at my desk alone making navigational taxonomies and then taking my documents to my client or my colleagues and saying, look, this would be so much better if we just did X. And then I got 
you know, thrown up on in terms of feedback and arguments and people not agreeing with the way that I had done things. And then I went back to my desk and was kind of stuck in this, this constant revision cycle. So I had that um, kind of as my early experience. And then since publishing the book, I would say um, the number one thing that people ask me about is really okay, how do I sell this to my organization? How can I involve other people in, in these decisions? How can I like avoid that awful feeling when you do something and you put a lot of time towards it and then people just reject it because it's not what they thought or what they would have done? Um, so I started to really become interested in this idea that information architecture is a practice that is done by people from, you know, kind of all, all backgrounds and, and skill sets. And because of that, we all inherently have opinions on how it should be done. And so if we do it together collaboratively, as opposed to singularly and then presented um, as sort of the, the end-to-end solution, like, could we have more effect? And um, for the last couple of years, I've been practicing that way in terms of my consulting life. And I, I've finally started to really think about it as a subject that I might be able to share with others um, and so this summer I, I worked on a, a webinar for UIE um, called Collaborative Information Architecture. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of digging into that a little bit more. How is it different? It's really getting people into the idea of facilitation around activities that are really digging into um, talking about language and structure. So in a lot of cases, I've seen this happen in a lot of meetings where somebody will say, oh, this is just a semantic argument. And, and they'll kind of like use that as an opportunity to parking lot something. Um, I would say that I would like to encourage semantic arguments. I think that if we had more conversations about the language that we use, we would make more progress uh, more efficiently with the people that we work with. And we'd be able to get to an end result much quicker. Um, and so it's a lot about facilitation skills. Um, and it's also about kind of unburdening the IA uh, practitioner from having to own all of the decision making on a project and learning how to share that. And I think that comes from kind of two places. One is reminding people that um, you might be an expert in leading people through an information architecture exercise, and you might be an expert at drawing diagrams of taxonomies, but no one has like in their brain all of the different structures that would be perfect for every given context, for every given organization. That that just doesn't exist. So really inviting people who practice IA to remember that it is the process um, that's the most important and that they are going through that process as well. So they're not going to be less of an expert if they don't know the answer on the first day of how to organize things. Um, I get a lot of questions from people that are like, you know, oh, I'm designing this homepage for this type of organization. Should I organize it this way or this way? And, you know, unfortunately, my answer to them is always like, well, it, it really depends. It depends on what your intention is. It depends on who your organization wants to be when they grow up. Like, there's a lot of things that you actually need to answer. So it's not just kind of like an off the shelf, oh, like, let me match up. You, you are this kind of business and you are designing this kind of thing. So alphabetical, that's the way to do it. Um, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, that sounds a lot like um, some of the various design um, strategies that we just did a course on, where it's not a there's not like hard rules. It's about the process. Right. Yeah. It's uh, Richard Saul Werman who coined the term information architect um, back in in the 70s. He said that we're on a journey from not knowing to knowing, and I think that that's something that I try to remember. Um, when I start a new project, because at the beginning, it is a really anxious time when you're looking at a huge mountain in front of you that is this thing that you're going to have to tackle. Um, it's really easy to just jump to solution land and be like, oh, I could just do it this way. I could just do it that way. But I think sitting with that discomfort and then sharing that discomfort with other people so you can come to a result together, um, it's just, I think it's a much more productive way to, to practice. I think that people really struggle with that, especially if you're working with, uh, I, in my experience, if I'm working with programmers, developers, software engineers. Those guys are like the best at semantic arguing. They, they, but they want, they're, they, they go into like, um, I, in your, in your book, you have this section on uh, thinking about nouns and verbs mm -hmm. and, um, in the in uh, our conceptual model course, um, I talk about deciding on 
when you're doing design, deciding on what the user objects should be in the interface. And yep. and and I talk of, and we go through some exercises where we have people uh, identify from like uh, their um, scenario or their task analysis, you know, nouns and verbs. Uh, I always make the joke, you know, Mrs. McGillicuddy told you in third grade that you'd need to know about grammar <laughs> and, and when, when you were all grown up. And that, that moment has now arrived, you know? Yeah, no, um, totally. Because a lot of times I'll have people in, in my classes and they'll go, nouns? Yeah, words? what's a noun? I mean, they don't, they're yeah. not even sure. But anyway, we, we go through Predi- this. Uh, ex- what? I know nothing but like all my friends are either like economists or English majors. Oh, okay. So they, the past participle, past, yeah, dangling participle. So, um, Mm. we, you know, we go through this process where I identify, you know, nouns and verbs and, 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 uh, and then it comes time to, comes the moment of, um, making some decisions about, you know, given this set of people, the, the people who you're designing the product for, and giving the kinds of things they want to do, right? Uh, and how many of those things there are that they would have to deal with, and on and on. Um, you decide what are going to be the major objects that we're going to make sure are very clear in the interface when we design the interface. Right. And there's, um, you know, there's not one answer to that. I mean, some decisions about what the objects should be uh, and what they are and what they aren't and how they relate to each other. Some of those decisions are re- lead you to uh, uh, an interface that is easier to learn and easier to use, right, and fits better. Um, but there's no one right answer, right? right. And so when we're, we'll have, uh, we'll do this in, in, for instance, when I'm doing a workshop and I'll have teams and the teams will come up with, you know, I mean, and I've, I've rigged it because I've got a particular case study they're working on, right? And so there are, you know, some likely objects that almost all the teams come up with, but then there's variations, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, it drives them crazy. You know, sometimes it's, they're like, no, no, what's the right answer? Right. <laughs> and it's like, well, there isn't a right answer. It depends on whether, you know, your team thought that the, you know, this was more important or that was more important or the users would tend to do this more or that more. And, of course, you could get, you know, get data on that and therefore um, narrow down your choices of of which object design you picked. But, but people kind of struggle with this, you know. Yeah. Not only it depends, but just that there's more than one one good way to do it yeah and and like so me so i'm an economist i have people come up to me you know well and we'll be talking about economics and stuff they're like so what's what's the what's your advice what's the best thing for the economy and it's like (laughs) one best thing it really depends what your goal is right yeah so so there's a because right so there's are you talking about the united states economy are you talking about the global economy are you talking about the economy for like manufacturing workers? Because it, you know, and a lot of times at economics, right? It's you know, should we eat more of this, or, or should we eat more of this? Sh- you know, should we do more of this? No, but I mean that's a perfect example too. Like, yeah. let's say that I'm a nutritionist and somebody yeah, walks exactly. up to me and says, "Should I eat more of this?" It's like, well, that really depends a lot on you know your metabolism and your uh, heredity and the way and that you always process too much. things. And yeah, there's always too much. I, I feel like you know the the funny thing about people being uncomfortable with there being more than one way to organize their information is that that same thing applies to everything. It's like there's more than one way. They say there's more than one way to skin a cat for a reason. It's applicable to so many different things in our life. I I think that, you know, it really comes down to people are just incredibly unsure when it comes to uncertainty. They're just, they're very, um, which is pretty meta. 
Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like people are just uncomfortable when they don't know if it's right. Is this the right way? And, you know, earlier, Susan, you, we were talking about measurement and I feel like measurement does have a place and that's where the place for measurement is in, in my mind. It's like, is the thing that you decided to do working and are the metrics that you chose to measure the effectiveness of that solution actually measuring the effectiveness of that solution or are they measuring other kind of vanity things that you're just attaching to measurement of that solution um so i think you know the first step is to get people comfortable with the idea of like well first is like as the expert i don't have the answer but i can help you get there second is once we get there that might be the answer but there's still other ways that we could do this and then the third is to actually measure those things and land on them i mean i think that the the rise of a b testing has been really um, amazing for the kind of like maturity of the web um, because we're actually able to do some of those things and say like we don't know there's these two or three ways and we're going to measure them head to head and see what happens it's a much harder and more nuanced sell you know it, it just sounds so much better if you have a magical pill just oh take this take this yeah. pill and everything will be great I wish I had an IA store that I could drive to and be like, I'm looking for a homepage for a pharmaceutical company. Let me buy that taxonomy. But I have never seen uh, two that looked alike at the end of the day. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, that's, I, it's kind of, I actually, it is kind of funny because I think all three of us, I mean, even though we're in kind of different worlds, we all deal in worlds that depend that where the answer is almost always it depends and yeah. the only place it doesn't is maybe susan when she's doing some brain stuff because all brains are the same um but how you but but how you implement that depends on what you want so for example uh like like reading comprehension right so you actually if you have a longer line length mm -hmm. pe you, you people read faster that way but to a certain extent, <laughs> but right? People, like that—that that does have a break point with the line length thing. I think so. You'd have to ask Susan. I mean, I'm guessing if I'm you guessing have if you have to like turn your head. Yeah, there's there's a range in which the line length. But people uh, prefer shorter line shorter. lengths. Yeah. Right. So it's like, well, you know, and what do you want? And almost always it's going to be like, make people happy. So you'll, you know, you go with a reasonable line length, but you know, so it's, so it's, yeah. So we, we deal, we deal in these shades of gray. Yeah. Uh, the whole world is like that. All right. So here's what I learned. I learned that, um, the fact that my office is usually messy is a good thing. Because if it works mess, for you, it's a, a mess good thing. is a good thing. Um, well, actually, uh, with with Guthrie's influence, my office is a lot less messy than it was before. But um, no, I I learned that uh, that's that their stuff is messy. That information architecture is not about coming up with the best way, the one best way to organize information. Um, and, uh, that, uh, we should go, the three of us need to, um, start that company <laughs> that will automatically, uh, organize all of our files for we, us. We do not have enough programming chops. No. no. We can hire programming chops. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to need some. No. Okay. We're going to okay. need some So that, so that <laughs> I never have to go through what I did in the last two weeks again um but i do feel very righteous now you know like because i went through that and everything's organized and and i worked hard at it so that actually you know I, that, that's a good feeling crucible of i think the test of that system is going to be what does it look like in six months <laughs> well so here's the thing that i actually have faith in so she had a very 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 messy office and we did the same thing except in a physical space with her office yeah um and it has been Eight months, a year, uh, almost a year, yeah. And it is still clean. Oh, yeah. that's great! So you did yeah. it. You did it right. You paid attention to 
whatever your patterns are and paid attention to uh, longevity of the right. solution. Yeah. yeah, he did it right because he's he's the he's the systems guy. I am the systems guy. Say. I like systems. Abby, uh, thank you so much for talking to us. Hey, hey thanks, Abby. So, if people want to learn more and get involved in the world of information architecture. What are some suggestions that you have? Uh, well, one would be if you're if you're real nerdy on it, uh, you can join the Information Architecture Institute at iainstitute.org. I am a, a loving member of that organization. Uh, we have an annual um, event every year called World Information Architecture Day. It takes place all over the world. Yeah, so we've, I, we've, I, uh, we spoke at the one in Milwaukee last winter. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I um, I was really happy to see Milwaukee get on the map last year. So hopefully they'll do it again uh, this year. But if not, I'm sure you'll get invited to another location. We have, uh, I think, over 60 locations coming up in 2017. Yeah. So um, a lot of languages, a lot of uh, context in terms of where the organizers are coming from and how they're applying IA. So um, I find that to be really interesting. And then if you want to keep up with uh, what I'm working on, I can be found at abbytheia.com. And I and I would say that um, everyone should should read her book because it's easy to read and it's uh, very interesting and uh, uh, very accessible. How to make sense of any mess, Abby Covert. Um, hey, stay in touch with us, okay? Yeah, you guys too. This has been really fun. All yeah. right, now Guthrie, I'm going to remind everyone. Yes. That if they like our podcast, they should subscribe to it and they should tell other people and they should rate it like on iTunes or wherever it is that they're listening because the rating really helps get the word out about the podcast. And I, and I should say this again, like I, I should really say this every week. Um, so uh, at the moment, we're not even getting paid to do this because we don't have sponsors yet. So we literally are just doing it for the fans. So you'd better appreciate it. So we're doing it. We're doing it only for you. Well, we have fun doing it. <laughs> we too. have fun doing it too. Um, again, our our website is theteamw.com. Uh, you can send an email if you have um, suggestions for upcoming shows at uh, info at theteamw.com. Abby, thank you so much. This is great. Thanks, guys. Susan, I will talk to you again soon. And to everyone listening, thanks so much. I'll, I'll uh, we'll, we'll catch you next week. <laughs>